Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everybody, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, as always, and I am so happy that you are tuning in today. And I am more so blessed that you have decided to throw this up in your queue and listen to it on whatever platform you do. And uh, I just want you to know that uh, how much I am thankful for all of you. So as we have talked in previous episodes, we have looked at uh, pagan eschatology, we've looked at world religions, and we started to dig into Genesis. Uh, We're going to continue that theme in today's episode. We are going to look at the flood and the eschatological implications of that incident. So there are tons of accounts out there. Um, We see it all over the world in regards to world religions. There's always something catastrophic in a flood that has done some sort of damage in in a culture's past. So we're going to be looking at it from a biblical narrative. We're going to look at Genesis 6 and uh, and there forward, and we will be talking about how this has uh, some eschatological impacts and uh, how can we understand not only the wrath of God, but the love and compassion and mercy of God through the story as well. So uh, we will look at that in light of, obviously, the coming end of times, the final wrath of God being displayed upon humans. And that is where I think we're going to conclude the episode. And then we're going to look forward into some uh, other Old Testament text. Uh, I'm starting to plan that out as we... um, kind of move forward with this episode well this series i guess so as before we really get into the text just a few things um that i really want to uh just quickly talk about obviously you know every episode i make sure i talk about it but because it is important and they they do impact me personally so there's always three things well there's three things currently there's Undying Light merchandise, which you can get shirts, sweatshirts, and all that gear. I am not making much of anything off of it. I just want those who support the show to be able to rep their podcast. You know, all the other mainstream shows have gear. I've got some now. Go get some. Where I know some people have gotten sweatshirts and t-shirts, and they said the quality is great. They love it. The print looks good. So um, the link is in my bio. Go check it out. Let me know your thoughts. The second thing is, is as I've been preparing for this series, not only just in the, um, you know, the, the four views of uh, eschatology, but also the attributes of God series, I have relied heavily on Logos Bible software. I have uh, a number of books in there, commentaries, various, um, interpretations of scripture, various, uh, just theological books and magazines that have helped make an impact on this show. And so 
Uh, I have the ability to give you a discount on Logos so you can get your own copy and start building your library. It is logos.com forward slash undying light. That to me is the biggest thing I can give back to you guys in giving you a discount on uh, Logos Bible Software. It can get pricey uh, as you get into some of the higher tiers, but the biggest thing I can do is give you guys a discount. Uh, I've had um, a couple people order it through my link, and they are they they love it. From what we were discussing, they it is it, instrumental. And it doesn't matter what walk of life you are. Uh, you could be a pastor. You could be in seminary. You could be a layperson. You can be a mom doing uh, homeschooling or teaching your children. You can be catechizing your kids. Whatever your position may be, Logos is instrumental and a tremendous help. And there's so much. There's so many great things about it. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I won't spend 20 minutes talking about it. So if you have questions, feel free to. to DM me and I would be more than happy to discuss the benefits and everything with you. The link for that is also in my bio. All of the links that I do are in my bio. I have a nifty little link tree and it takes you right to it. So the other thing is, is to support this ministry. It is not cheap. It is not easy. So to help uh, move this ministry forward because it's not, like I said, not cheap or easy. Um, I have a wonderful group of people who have come alongside me to help support this ministry. Uh, if you are wanting to get in on some of the behind the scenes things that I do, early episode releases, the Bible studies, all that for as low as a dollar. Um, I don't do tears or nothing like that, that other patrons do not to say that I'm better or different. I just, I said, you know, if you can only give a dollar, I don't want you to feel left out. So $1 gets you access to all of that. And some people give more, and I'm truly blessed for that. But $1 gets you access to all of the works that we do uh, behind the scenes. So you can find the, the link to my Patreon page in the bio as well. And guys, again, I can't thank you enough for your support for this show because it has been, um, it has given me the ability to uh, upgrade my hardware, my mics. It's upgraded my software to record these episodes. It helps support the weekly or the month, uh, weekly now um, podcast episodes. Not only for Undying Light, but a matter of truth, because I host both of those shows. Uh, helps take care of all of the um, tools that I use to pr- uh, produce content, and it's uh, been tr- a tremendous blessing. So please. If you find it in your heart that you want to contribute to this ministry, I would be greatly blessed and I would um, be very thankful. And like I said, we do all sorts of different things. DM me if you have questions. So enough of the house cleaning stuff. I want to try to keep it um, to as minimal as possible. I recently on the Undying Light page did a quick survey and um, I got a lot of good feedback uh, kind of in regards to the show's premise. Um, and one of the comments that uh, I think really stuck out to me was sometimes I can be, I can babble on in the beginning of the show. And so I'm going to try to be a little bit more clean and concise in the beginning and not just trail on. So my house cleaning is going to be under a few minutes every time now. And I want to ensure that I am delivering better content and getting right to the point quicker to where you guys aren't driving your cars or listening on your iPads or whatever and rolling your eyes going, does this guy ever shut up? Just kind of like I'm doing right now. But sometimes the banter is, uh, is, is okay and well needed as in this instance. So a couple of things that I've kind of been juggling in my mind and I want to make sure, um, I address them on the show. Um, as we go through scripture, um, obviously the flood is a um, is, is an eschatological event. It is God destroying and rebuilding. And that's what we will see as we get into uh, the end of times with Christ coming back. We will see that instance again. So we will discuss uh, the flood on this episode. But going forward, there's, um, there's a lot of minor events that happen uh, in scripture that kind of build up to 
the first coming of Christ and then point to the second coming of Christ. Um, I don't know. I have yet to decide, and I might put a poll out on this before this, probably before or after the show airs, and decide whether or not I am going to um, touch on those. Maybe I'll do just do an episode that kind of flybys a lot of these little events and just kind of touch on them, and then we'll get into like uh, the bigger stuff like Daniel and, and things like that. Uh, and then we will be definitely spending a lot of time in the Gospels, and then we will be looking at Revelation as promised. So those are still on the table. I'm just kind of juggling in my mind, do I really want to spend, you know, unnecessary time in, I don't want to say unnecessary time, but, you know, on events that may or may not have based upon interpretations and based upon your hermeneutics. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm at right now, and I'm just kind of working my mind through it. And uh, I've got some close people to me that have helped provide some counsel. And so I am thinking that maybe we'll just do, uh, after this episode airs, we'll do one episode that kind of just covers a span of time and we'll touch on the events in that time. Um, And instead of spending, you know, a a whole episode on each event, we'll just kind of cover them in, in one broad move. So with that being said, uh, we are going to dig into the flood and we are going to look at how this flood has some massive implications on scripture. So let's dig in and we are going to look at Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be reading the scriptures. We're going to look at the first eight verses and we're going to kind of talk a little bit about this. What does this mean? Um, there are some things in here, but we are not going to cover on this particular episode, mainly because. Um, they are not, they don't have a a huge impact on what we are actually looking at. All right. Genesis six, one, when man became, began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters were attractive and they took their wives, any they choose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and after, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of their thoughts and their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, there's a lot going on in this particular text. So I want to kind of just really focus more on verses 5 through 8. The first few just kind of indicates some corruption going on in the world. But what we really start to understand is the imagery here in the first in these last couple of verses at the beginning of chapter six uh, is the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of their thoughts of his heart was evil was only evil continually so as the Lord looks out we see that sin has made such an impact on the world and in that we have now sin essentially running rampant. When we talked last time in uh, on the last episode, we talked Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then what we kind of are going to skip over is the first actual action of sin, the first recorded incidents outside of the garden of sin, and that is when uh, Cain kills Abel. So we won't spend too much time, but what we start to understand is that this one moment, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him, as Genesis 4, 8 says. When that happens, what we get is corruption, sin, death, all of these things um, start to run rampant in the world. Now, Scripture doesn't really record these particular instances because what we get in... um, what we get in Genesis 5 is descendants from Adam to Noah. 
And then in six, we see that all of a sudden this corruption coming out, right? We just kind of comes out of nowhere, if you would. So what we're really brought to is in Genesis six is just this massive amount of corruption and wickedness. We can, again, speculate on all of the things. Um, Obviously, we know what's evil. We know the things that uh, oppose what God has put on the heart of man uh, would be considered evil if it's in opposition to God. There's a lot of discussions that go between Genesis 3 and Exodus with the law being given. Um, Were men accountable to the law? Um, Or are there issues in regards to how did God handle this? Uh, Romans 1 touches on this as Paul writes that God has placed the law upon man's heart even without the law being present. So we can argue that that's not what the show, this episode is going to be dealing with. However, uh, what we must understand is that if it opposes God, we know that it is wicked. So we know that sin has entered the world, as Genesis 3 tells us. We know that we see sin being displayed in Genesis 4 as Cain kills Abel. And now here in Genesis 6, we start to see this wickedness go across the land. We see it so much, in fact, that God says he regrets that he made man. So as we have to understand, too, that this isn't God changing his mind. This isn't God, you know, going so far into creation and then actually saying, well, I can't handle it or I, 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 I messed up or, I, you know, I have to change it now. God is saying in terms that we can understand that there is something that needs to change. When Moses wrote Genesis, God is telling Moses in a manner that we can understand that man has become so corrupt that he must now do something. He must act and do something. And this is where we start to get this eschatological understanding, right? This It's the looking forward to something different, something better. And what we're going to see is God is going to wipe away the evilness and wickedness of man. However, what we must understand too is that the flood does not actually rid us of our sinful nature. As we will see going forward in scripture, the flood just wipes away this evil generation that has um, come across the land. And interestingly enough, um, we see this reflected in uh, what Jesus says in Matthew in regards to like the days of Noah, which we will actually be touching on that text uh, here shortly. So uh, I'm going to read chap, uh, the rest of chapter 6, and we're going to look at chapter 7 as well. It's only uh, it's a handful of verses, so bear with me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, get them out. I'd love for you to uh, go over this with me, uh, and we will be uh, looking here at starting verse 9. These are the generations of Noah... Noah was a blameless man, blameless in his generation. That does not mean Noah was actually sinless. But Noah walked with God, and Noah and his three had three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japhim. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So another indication to the um, atrocities that are going on around it. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms on the ark and cover it inside and with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 30 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. Its height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door on the ark on its side. Make it with the lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which its breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, for I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all the flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, 
and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind and the animals according to their kind and the creeping things on the ground according to their kind. Two of every sort shall come into you and keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. That's the end of chapter 6. So uh, we'll be looking at 7 as well because it's a continuation of the flood incident. So what we're getting here is this picture. God is looking at this landscape and we have seen corruption, idolatry, uh, is probably re- uh, prevalent. These men are worshiping things of that they have made with their own hands. Uh, they uh, do not know or fear the God of heaven, the God who has created the world. And um, what we also get is uh, the land is filled with violence. That is echoed in verse 11. It, kind of very similar to what today is, in fact. The land filled with violence, idolatry, and just about every, and literally every sin under the sun that could be um, committed. Man is doing it then, and they are doing it now. We have to understand that this point of time in the early creation, the this sin, this wickedness had to be so bad, so corrupt that God saw it fit to just wipe the world and only save eight people. I'll let that sink in for a minute as we are examining this text. It is that is that is catastrophically deadly. I mean, it just the this whole instance it, it just blows my mind at how much the sin um, had to be prevalent and how much uh, had to be um, how much had to be there for God to 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 literally say there's I'm just gonna wipe it all I'm gonna wipe it wipe it clean so as we're gonna look at some notes and then we're gonna look at the rest of chat uh, and then we're gonna look at chapter seven as well uh, we're gonna kind of meander through um, some of this uh, the views on why the flood is obviously considered um, an eschatological event. Obviously, it's the destruction of uh, the human race, uh, all except those eight, which is going to be a um, type of the eschatological event to come when Christ comes again. So this is really the first instance in um, Scripture, and it's really the only instance in Scripture um, before the second coming. So it is the only time we see an eschatological event occur, and the only time we will see another one is when Christ returns. So may, so as I was looking at some notes here, uh, there are four main flood stories that are found in Mesopotamian sources. Um, we see in Genesis, we see in an old Babylonian uh, writing, uh, and then we see in some Assyrian and uh, writings as well, and then a newer account uh, in Babylonian thir- third century. So the unity of the Genesis flood account, uh, a detailed uh, literary structure of Genesis 6 through 9, argues for the unity of the flood narrative instead of smaller textual events. So um, another thing, too, as we look into some of these notes and we look into understanding this flood, this isn't an isolated local event. This is a global flood uh, there are uh, n- numerous accounts around the world to actually solidify this position that the flood was global. And as we, as I was watching some of the uh, notes, because there's a, uh, a video on um, Amazon, it's the Days of Noah. I, I, there's, I guess it's four parts. I only watched part one because I wanted to really kind of get a picture of the flood and and. The, the events surrounding it. And they argue that the flood obviously is global. They argue from a young earth position, um, which are two things that I hold to myself, that we are, um, give or take 6,000 years of earth life, maybe 8,000 at most. Um, I believe the flood obviously was global. And they use the Grand Canyon as a 
um, basis to argue the position that is they look at the different layerings in the sand. They're all flat and they all match up as one event brought all of the soil, all this rock and deposited it into one flat layer. Uh, and then they argue how fossils are found in fossil beds where there's, you know, animals that are kind of entangled together and they find them all within the same layer of soil all over the world. This is an, an issue. I wouldn't say an issue. This is kind of the, the picture that is being painted, right? There's these animals that are uh, killed by one global event, which is the flood. And all of their bones, their bodies are deposited into what they call as fossil beds. And as they are digging, they're finding these animals that are kind of, you know, warped and bent into positions. And they're on top of each other. So the bigger animals on the bottom and the smaller animals on top. Like they, And it's, it's a really fascinating breakdown when you start to get into archaeology and things like that. Um, but this is, it's interesting and it makes it... It makes it very difficult to argue against an isolated flood instance. So what we under, you know, are going to take the position of in this instance is a global flood in a young earth time period. So as we formulate those two positions, I kind of want to also draw our attention to another instance in the factualization of it, right? That this is a factual event. This really did happen. And understanding that this is a factual event helps us as Christians to be able to debate, for one, atheists or other religions to say that when we come forward with this event to use it as support for something later, as we will see in Matthew 24, we have to be sound in our belief that this legitimately happened. And the thing I think that many Christians kind of get lost in today is... Oh, you know, the flood, eh, it may or may not have happened. Well, Jesus certainly believed that it did. And if Jesus believes that it did, then I'm going to believe that it did as well. And so I hope you as listeners will take that upon yourself uh, and really get into this. So what we're going to see is in the literary structure of the flood narrative, the genealogical frame uh, or the envelope construction that we see from Genesis 5, 32, all the way through 9, 28, and 29. And then we will get secondary genealogies uh, in Genesis 6, 9, and 10. And then again in 9, 18, and 19 are indicators that this account is in fact intended to be factual. We are seeing uh, genealogy stretched from Adam to Noah. And we are seeing all of these accounts that tell us that this event really in fact did happen. So now we're going to continue to look at uh, some of the theology behind the flood. We're going to look at uh, the God of the flood, the theodicy of it. Uh, we're going to kind of put together this picture and hopefully paint a broader scope as we uh, continue to walk ourselves through uh, the scripture. We also need to understand as well, when we talked about a bit, few bit, minutes ago, the uh, events recorded from other cultures they never have any cause to it. Whereas in Scripture, we have a cause, the wickedness of man. So as we line this up, what we will get is a theological motivation for the flood. That's God's divine justification. That is God's divine justice against the wickedness of this world of these men who have brought violence and destruction and mayhem and idolatry and lust and all probably every sexual sin you can imagine into the land. God is bringing divine justice against these individuals. And that is what we are getting in comparison to other Near Eastern stories in which uh, gods are essentially just arbitrary. They act out of unreasonable anger or selfishness. Um, they don't care for the people, and so the floods that are recorded have really no context to it. They have no f foundation to support it, whereas Scripture, we see this continuing flow of God's divine justice along with God's divine mercy played out in all of Scripture. 
And what we actually get is God is extending his mercy to one man, Noah, and his family as he saves uh, his people along with two of every kind. So God himself makes a provision to save mankind. Uh, This sorry, uh, again, is moved to pity, showing compassion, showing grief. It's not a necessary that God is changing his mind as we were highlighting a few minutes ago. So let's make sure we are clear on that. Um, But it is God showing compassion for his people, finding favor with Noah and sparing him. So God takes humanity's pain and anguish and he brings forward his act of destruction. Interesting, too, as we look at this, it's not that God is actually destroying anything. God is only destroying what has already been ruined and corrupted by sin. He's being merciful to a few and destroying the rest. So the God of the biblical flood is not only just, but he's also merciful. We see that displayed all throughout Scripture, that just because God brings divine wrath upon, for instance, Israel, he still shows them mercy by giving them the opportunity to repent. He's still calling them back to him through the prophets that were sent to him. And as this show will air towards the end of October, uh, I have an opportunity to preach this coming Sunday, the uh, the 4th, and uh, you can catch that. It'll be on YouTube if you want to listen to it. And I'm going to talk about the evil tenants in Matthew 21. And uh, it's interesting how we're looking at this and showing God's mercy, how he has sent prophets to warn his people. And we even see instances of that now as Noah will start building the ark and people mock and ridicule him. God has sent prophets to warn the people from his divine wrath. God is saying, repent and turn to me and I will give you life. And finally, he sends his son, Christ, and the landowners kill him. The Pharisees kill Christ. So uh, I'm looking forward to preaching that sermon tomorrow, but as well as this whole landscape is, is displayed right in front of our eyes, that God is a God of just and mercy. Whereas we don't get that in any other Nature, no other arbitrary God created, no other attribute like this can be given to any secular gods, any worldly religious gods. You know, you don't see it in Islam, you don't see it in Buddhism, you don't see it in Hinduism. Nowhere else do we get this picture of a just and a merciful God in the same uh, in the same instance. So what we get out of all this is the human moral responsibility, right? The betrayal of humanity's moral depravity causes the flood. This is the highlight. This is the, the sin that is throughout the land. And Noah is found to have favor with God. Noah's response of faith, which is highlighted in Hebrews eleven seven, I will bring that up for you to read now says, and by faith Noah, when warned about these things, had not yet seen. And holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world to become an heir of righteousness that he is keeping with faith. So it is faith that saves Noah. So he is righteous, blameless, walks together in a personal relationship with God. And he responds in obedience to what God has commanded. But let's also understand that Noah was still a sinner. That's just evident, right? To have found favor and be blameless doesn't mean he was sinless. And that's the same account that we give Job as well. Job was blameless before the Lord. So in eschatological judgment, God announces the coming of the flood to Noah. He says, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, as Genesis 6.13 states. Now, the eschatological term kes is end later becomes a technical term for eschaton. Uh, Divine judgment involves a period of probation, which is found in Genesis 6, 3. The divine judgment follows. He has determined that he will execute this flood, destroying all of humanity. 
Now, interestingly enough, I'm actually I'm really thinking about doing a series on the covenants. I don't know how I'm going to pit it in with the rest of the show, but um, we do get the Noadic covenant uh, in here as well. Um, I'm not going to touch base on it. It gets quite strenuous because, like, uh, unlike all other covenants in the Bible, we see that Noadic covenant is made not only to mankind but to the whole earth. So interesting piece, right? God tells Noah that he's going to make this covenant with him, but it includes all of the earth. It includes every living creature. It's Genesis 9, 10, Genesis 9, 12, Genesis 9, 15, and 9, 16 tells us. And thus completely unilateral and unconditional upon the response of the earth and its inhabitants. There's no conditions made. God says that he will no longer flood the world, use essentially water as a judgment. And he remembers that covenant when uh, with the rainbow, the actual real rainbow, not the you know LGBTQ junk that we see today. Uh, so as we move forward, um, we get a lot of typology coming out of this, right? As I had mentioned earlier in the show, some flood typology. Um, the typological nature of the flood account is already implicit in Genesis. Uh, Isaiah provides an explicit verbal indicator that the flood is a type of covenantal eschatology, as Isaiah writes in 54.9. Along with several possible allusions to his descriptions of eschatological salvation of Israel, found more in his writings, the prophet Nahum and Daniel uh, depict some eschatological judgment and uh, can often be alluded to using the Genesis Flood account. We will also get into some New Testament writers who make this connection between the flood and the end of times, um, the salvation of Noah and his family in the ark through the waters uh, of the flood, finds its antitypes in the New Testament, in the salvation connected with water baptism, as First Peter in the third chapter, verses 18 through 22, write, and I will read that, For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of clear consciousness towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I also wanted to say that I brought up Matthew before, so we're going to look at Matthew 24, uh, verses 37 through 39. And it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about it, what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So as we examine these accounts that we have been given, First Peter, Matthew, and, uh, and there's also a few other instances here. There's Luke 17, um, which is a reflection to Matthew, just as it is was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the day of man. People were eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving up in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. So what we have gotten in the imagery of the flood, what we have here in the imagery of Matthew and now Luke, is the fact that um, these people were corrupt. Eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, there was evil and violence that had filled the earth. And so God brings his divine wrath against these people. And he washes away, you can call it the filth, uh, of, of mankind. Now, interestingly enough, that sin is still prevalent. That sin still exists. The sin to do the exact same thing as before the flood. Um, we see that God l laments over 
creating man and therefore he decides to um, destroy the the world but we don't really get any much you know we don't get a lot much more detail than that uh, because we still know that sin exists and, and this is the thing that I wrestle with myself if if the sin still exists why didn't God just create a new creation in here and this can be argued in many theological circles this can be argued in just about every ivory tower debate possible god got to a point with mankind in genesis 6 that he felt the need to wipe away the filth of the earth killing everything except two of every kind of animal and eight humans what we get back in genesis 1 2 and 3 well 1 and 2 to be specific is we have this you know the the creation it's perfect then sin enters the world in genesis 3 and with sin entering the world as we've noted on this episode it has um, just multiplied and god could have easily and he still can today easily end mankind and he would be just in doing so but what we also understand too is god's mercy in Genesis 6, and this is where I rest myself to um, trying to understand all of this, is God had a redemptive plan. He made this promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that uh, a redeemer would come, and we see that, that that promise gets played out, and we'll touch a little bit on it in Genesis 15 when we go through some of these high-level areas of Scripture, that the redeemer comes in the form of Christ. And so while God could have easily destroyed the world in Genesis 6, killing everybody, including Noah and his family and starting fresh, that would have broken his promise in Genesis 3. So God does not lie, nor does he fault on any of his promises. Therefore, God saves eight people, and from those eight come humanity as we know it today. And God makes this promise with Noah that he will no longer, or he will no, he will not destroy the world uh, via flood, which we will see uh, as we get into some other um, scripture. Uh, a different type of judgment is coming for mankind. So that is the flood account. There's a lot to it. There's so much more in it. Um, and one of the things that I've really Uh, enjoyed reading through is some of the typology on the flood and trying to see how the flood points towards another destruction. It points towards um, the second coming of Christ. God has already wiped the filth away from the earth once and he will do it again with the, the coming of his son Christ. And now we can get into the debate of dispensational eschatology um, where we will have a literal interpretation of the book of Je- uh, Revelation, including Daniel and some various other texts. We can debate that. We can argue a uh, figurative interpretation and all of these things. But at the end of the day, what we would, what we want to understand is how are we going to handle these types of texts going forward because they will have an implication of how we understood the Genesis text here. We took Genesis at a literal, it was a flood, it happened, it was global, not a local event, and God used it to bring his to bring forward his divine justice, and he used it to bring forward his divine mercy. So we see these two instances being displayed perfectly. Here in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. Now, I know I said I was going to read the rest of uh, Genesis 7, but it just talks about uh, Noah going into the ark with all the animals. And uh, and then into chapter 8, we see the subsiding of the waters. Um, so for time's sake, I would just recommend to read that. There is just the, the time um, of Noah being in the ark in these scriptures. Now, if we get into 7... Chapter 7, verse 11, I will highlight this. This is the actual flood occurring in the 600th year of Noah's life and the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great depths burst forth 
And the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the very same day, Noah and his sons uh, entered the ark. So another interesting thing, too, is this isn't a drizzle. This isn't a, a you know, even a hurricane-type rain. This is a, it says that the great fountains, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So the earth is literally shooting up water. And the windows of heaven are open, and it just—you can imagine—probably within a, a few days, there's, you know, uh, a substantial amount of water already um, on on the world already, you know, feet worth of water that you would have to deal with. And I would venture to say that it probably didn't take God very long to flood the world and kill everything probably took longer for the for the waters to actually subside than it did to um, bring destruction and death to the wicked. In another instance, too, we have to understand that this is another case where God displays his perfect justice on those who are wicked and disobedient to him. This is not a God who is all loving. This is a God who is perfect in justice and perfect in love. This is a God who will punish the wicked, who will punish those who are disobedient to him. This is not something to take lightly as a Christian. This is a text that we can use not to just throw knife daggers at people, but to warn people that God will follow through with his promise. And that promise is that when Christ comes back, all bets are off. God will bring his divine justice amongst man and those who are wicked will be punished for it. And if you are curious about hell and eternal life, check out those episodes in this series. We did one on death, heaven, and hell. And I had the Bible dingers on the episode of hell. So ladies and gentlemen, um, I hope this episode was um, enlightening, encouraging, and uh, maybe bringing some truth to it. Um, I learned quite a bit watching some of these documentaries and reading some of these books. Again, I uh, I, I am looking at uh, Gerard Voss's uh, eschatology in the Old Testament um, as as a helper along through this. There is some tough reading in here. He is a little bit of an old school writer, so there is. Uh, it's a great book. It's not very long. It's maybe 200 pages. So check it out. Um, I don't obviously go through it step by step, but uh, I have other um, sources and websites that I kind of can pick through and, and formulate how I'm going to write the outlines to these shows. So um, that's it for me today. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am blessed that you are listening to this series and so thankful that you guys have devoted yourselves to this. Um, and what we're going to start to pick through in this, uh, and this is kind of the prelude to the, the direction that the show should, will be taking is a position on scripture. Um, I can't say non-biased because my hermeneutical understanding will have some impacts on scripture and how I read scripture but we will um, try to do it uh, as, you know, obedience to the scripture calls. Now, obviously, uh, I come out of a reform circle, so you'll get a lot of the reformers uh, understanding in me. You'll get a lot of Luther and, you know, John Calvin and John Knox and many of the other reformers. Um, the commentaries going back to the early church fathers looking at Pauline historians, things like that have all made a major impact on how I read and interpret scripture. So that's kind of the direction we're going to be taking. Obviously we're going to be looking at the um, events of eschatological impact going forward. We're going to examine those and then we will um, go into a new series at the end of this series. So uh, this wraps up October. Um, This episode will be the last one in October but there is still, there's five Fridays. So this episode will air on the 23rd and the 30th, I'm going to do a Q and a. So I put out a question box the other day and I had some questions. So I'm going to just do a straight Q and a that's going to wrap up the October show kind of as a break, something a little different. Um, I might bring a guest on. I haven't decided yet. 
Um, but we're just going to go through some questions and we're going to talk about just a bunch of different stuff. So that will be October 30th. Then we will do four shows in November and that should wrap up the Old Testament um, series, portion of this series. And then we will get into um, our Christmas series starting December 4th. And then we will pick back up in January with the New Testament. And this is, again, I'm just kind of spitballing here. I don't know how many more episodes I'm going to get through on the Old Testament. Could be six more, could be four more. Um, four would, like I said, would be perfect. It would take us right through the end of November. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm done rambling. I hope that this was a edifying episode and i hope that you guys got something out of it and feel free to dm me questions comments complaints concerns you know where to find me i am pretty much always available via some form of communication so shoot me a message let me know i will see you guys later god bless and Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.